Welcome to another episode of the Destination Linux podcast. Welcome to episode 89 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up by three allegedly semi-intelligent guys discussing our passion for Linux. In this episode, we're going to cover some distro news, an interview with a member of our community, and discuss Linux taking a break along with some controversial conduct conduct. Code of Conduct news. I guess it came out right that time. That's great. I'm Michael, and joining me today is Ryan. How are you doing this week? I use Arch. (laughs) (laughs) I feel compelled to tell you that. I'm glad that's the first thing you said in the show. That is, like, perfect. It's perfect. Is he going to become one of those people now? I think he has to be at this point. So, (laughs) as you heard, joining us also is Zeb. How are you doing? Hiya. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. So, um, so Ryan, what have you been up to this week? Uh, we already so know, I, sort of, but... <laughs> I use Arch. Um, so, yeah, I realized that after last week's episode, I hadn't used Arch in a really long time. It had been months and months and months since I've taken the plunge into it. So, after that episode, I went and installed it on the Dell XPS. And eventually, I'm not going to talk about how long it took. I got it all working and everything was fine. <laughs> And uh, I started using, you know, on the on the laptop XFCE plus an i3 combination with an Arch, which works perfectly well. Uh, very, very stable. And even some of the bugs that happened in other distros because you're setting up every single thing yourself, which takes a lot of time, such as your Wi-Fi drivers and stuff that, you know, maybe are already set for you in another distro. Then things worked really, really well. For instance, I didn't have the hesitation with switching Wi-Fi networks and things that sometimes when you'd come out from Hibernate would take 10, 15 seconds. Now it's instantaneous out of hibernation that it connects to the the Wi-Fi network and those type of things that were little issues. I don't wouldn't call them big problems, right? Because 10, 15 seconds and boom, it's back up and other stuff. But it's interesting to see kind of the power of Arch when you are doing all those little things that you're setting up for yourself. And it's amazing how many pieces of software you take for granted And even though I had done this before and I've done Gen 2 before, it is just amazing going back after not having touching one of those for a while and realizing, you know, all of the stuff that's needed to make one of these distros really fully work from a desktop environment. Things such as setting up printers, setting up sound uh, profiles, setting up widgets for those profiles and icons on your taskbars and all of these things that you've got to go do and set up. So then I went on to the Beast And I installed it there as well. So now I have Arch and Fedora on the Beast currently uh, that I'm running. And I'm using right now, in fact, Plasma on that. You would be so proud, Michael. I totally am. Plasma 5.13.5 because I wanted to see how stable doing my own installation of it would be. And I am very, very happy to report that it is literally flawless so far. I don't have any of the issues that I've sometimes had in Plasma iterations. The Arch Wiki is an incredible resource. However, there are times where you look at it and go, I, this isn't what I need or <laughs> I'm not getting it. So I'm going to go over here to a forum. And thankfully, there are so many people out there who have gone through what I've gone through or had similar issues where I, you know, so I used a variety of resources and it's just a lot of fun. Now, the one thing I think is interesting, Arch is extremely stable so far. Um, 
obviously there are issues that can happen with these kind of on the edge um, rolling distributions with updates and that type of stuff. So I'm going to be very cautious on updating make sure I know what's updating, what it's doing and that type of stuff. So I could potentially roll things back, but I really expected to have a lot more speed with Arch and I wasn't, I don't really get that. Meaning it's no faster than saying Zubuntu or Kubuntu or anything else. It's faster at booting, but that's about it. Once I'm inside of it, it seems to be just as snappy as any other distro. So I don't know if that's a thing. A lot of people talk about that with Gentoo, if that's a thing with Arch, but I expected to see some performance improvements and really it games about the same and the speeds about the same. Well, they well, used to be a thing. Sorry, isn't it, isn't it just working off of binaries like all the rest of them do? Whereas with Gen 2, you actually have to compile it yourself. So that's where you're meant to be getting the speed. Right. Speed. Well, technically, they're, they're, that's a good point. But also, because computers are so powerful now, that that, 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 that point of what, why you would use a particular distro over another is kind of moot now. Because they're pretty much all powerful enough to not notice any kind of issue. And if you have a, a, a significantly powerful machine, you will not notice anything at all. Because it'll mm-hmm. be in like, you might see benchmarking results that are different. But you won't, see, you won't be able to perceive the difference. So uh, in the same example of like Gentoo, there, if you, even if you do compile it now, you're looking at maybe 5% difference. So you probably wouldn't even notice that either. So. Yeah, and, and I think that's a very important thing to point out here. You may have noticed on your machine, you get a huge difference depending on the machine you have. We're talking about a machine that's got 32 gigs of DDR4 RAM, like the latest Ryzen 7 Pro. So for me to see a difference, it would have to be something substantial because nothing really utilizes all those resources I have anyways. Yeah. So I think that's important to point out. But I didn't see a huge performance thing, but it is fun. You do learn a ton. And I've had, a, yeah, I've absolutely had a blast doing it. That's why I did it on my laptop. And I was like, I'm going to go downstairs and do this on the Beast too, because it is fun re- remembering all of the things that make that we take for granted when you just do a nice pre-install Manjaro or Antergos or whatever, and it's all done for you. You forget what goes into all of that. It's quite amazing. Oh yeah, absolutely. So also is uh, Zeb. What have, you, what have you been up to this week? Uh, well, before we get up to what I've been up to, I'd just like to say a big thank you to Ryan for going through that sort of headache because I have absolutely no interest in installing my own art. <laughs> I just, I'm not that type of, of person, yeah? So I'm quite happy to go to DistroWatch, find out which one is made with Arch and go and install it, and then I'll get my Arch experience that way. I know it's not the true Arch experience, but hey, that's just, and, that, and that's the beauty of Linux. You don't have to go through that pain you can go to somebody who's got all of that for you. So back back to me, and it was quite interesting because I actually did my messing around this week before I realized what the main topic of our show was going to be today. So I've been playing with different kernels uh, with Peppermint OS, um, and I've tried one called Xanmod, X-A-N-M-O-D, and uh, I tried Licorix. Now, both work. Not sure what they bring to the table, though. So there's no noticeable frame rate increases when I'm playing my Euro trucks. Um, Since I've used both of them, they have both updated fine with no issues. So I had no black screens. I had no NVIDIA bombing out on me. So they've got all that um, sorted out. So why would you use it over the stock kernel? I haven't got a clue. (laughs) 
Would one of you guys know why you'd want to use Zanmod or Liquid? I've always heard they're faster, that there's the, for some reason, but honestly, I've never researched to figure out why. I basically have heard the terms and heard they're supposed to be faster kernels and some gaming-based distros will utilize them to say they get performance improvements out of it, but I've never researched to see why that is. So these, in, these individual kernels, I haven't tried them before to give any kind of... Uh, explanation of why that they have well, why are people using them or why they were made but there are other kernels that have a value that it can be i can totally explain it in the sense of like the hardened kernels where the linux kernel is a very secure system and like the kernel itself provides a lot of security but it's not there's like, there are some cases where you could make it much more secure by modifying some flags that when you compile the kernel, it would be even more secure. And so that's mm -hmm. what the hardened version kernels do. So there are some reasons to, ha to not use the standard kernel, but as far as these particular two, I'm not sure. Mm. So it'd be interesting to do a bit more research and do a bit more reading, because I'm, I'm a bit like Ryan. It's not RTFM. It's okay, now Zanmod, right? Let's go to the website, <laughs> do this, do this. Oops, I forgot to take out NVIDIA first, right? Undo that, now take out NVIDIA, back on Nuvo now, put the... But once they're there, they, they will work. So, yeah, it was, it was an interesting, interesting week. All right, cool. So, also, we got an interesting email this week. So, uh, Zeb, take it away. I certainly will. And this is actually becoming one of my favorite sections on the show now, finding yeah. out from the, from, from the listeners and the patrons what they're up to. So we had a really good email this week from a, a gentleman called Joshua. Um, and he says, hi, I've listened. I've enjoyed listening to the podcast. In the last episode, you asked listeners to write in telling how they use Linux. So here's my, um, here's how I use it. So he goes on to say, my primary, primary job is a band teacher, which is unusual in itself. I didn't realize that it had teachers that just taught. I know you had music teachers. So is that the same sort of thing as a band teacher? I'm not quite sure. Probably. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, he, and he does a secondary job as a recording engineer. Nice. Uh, and he's installed Ubuntu Studio on his ThinkPad T43 or T430. Um, and he tells us that that only costs him $200 on Amazon. So how great is that? Um, and he uses it as his daily driver for email and browsing, um, as well as portable recording device. Um, and then he goes on to talk about Ubuntu Studio, and he was amazed and overwhelmed at the number of audio processing tools available. Mm -hmm. um, but he ended up ultimately, um, and you'll have to excuse me if I get these names wrong because I'm not into audio at all, um, but, he, but he started using things like QJack CTL, as my back-end audio routing. Arda is the digital audio workstation. And now if you're into, if you're an audio file of some sort, that's known as the DAW, the D-A-W. Um, it's an incredibly powerful tool with a steep learning curve, but I have yet to find anything that I can't do with it. Um, then he goes on to say, as part of my signal change, I use calf plugging suites. Uh, a little plug-in called Noise Repellent. And using these can make a good recording sound pretty clean and transparent. Um, the thing I'm doing with the classical audio that I think is different than most is digital delivery. I set up a Raspberry Pi, Pi own, sorry, I set up a Raspberry Pi own cloud server in my house and offer customers.wav.mp3 or 24-bit 96K lossless FLAC. 
really? Is that a sound? Yeah, well, lossless flack is basically not compressing the audio. So anytime you're utilizing MP3 or uh, other formats, they're highly compressed. Flack is a, for an audiophile standpoint, a uncompressed format to get the most out of audio. So if you're going to spend a lot of money on headphones, on speakers, those type of things, you want to listen to your audio in that format because you're not going to have any of the compression to remove some of the range out there. Gotcha. Okay. Um, He then says, I think on-site digital delivery is going to be the innovation that changes live recording. Currently, I can deliver, deliver a file to a customer digitally before they get in the car to go home after the performance. That's important because cars don't have CD players anymore. Not a problem if you have a digital download. So that's how he uses um, uh, Linux in his day-to-day life and in his, you know, in his, in his hobby. Um, and it was interesting to hear somebody who did use all the digital side of it, because I have heard it can be quite complex and, and overwhelming, but he seems to have, have conquered it. Um, and he finishes up with saying, I enjoy your podcast, keep it up, which is, which is always nice. So Ryan, you're a bit of a, a, an audiophile. So can you explain a bit more about Jack CTL or door or calf? What was, what was all that about? Yeah. So I think this is interesting because Ubuntu studio is one that drew me in very early on in my Linux journey because it had all of these audio production tools I wasn't as familiar with what was available in the open source world at this time. And I had some equipment, some speakers, some headphones, and not as fancy equipment as I have now, but I still had fancy equipment back then. And Ubuntu Studio, when I read the description of it, when I was on the Ubuntu page, again, I was very new to Linux. I was like, this is perfect. This has all the tools I'm going to need to make YouTube content, to do recording, to do that type of thing. So um, I don't, I'm not sure what QJack CTL is, but certainly I use Jack as an audio resource to interface with certain audio equipment like the Behringer and stuff. In fact, Scrapjaw and I did a video on his channel of using Jack and some of the options there. Uh, Ardor being the digital audio workstation that he uses. So obviously he's doing probably stuff more in the Scrapjaw range of audiophile. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got a very, very cool and interesting setup here. But Ubuntu Studio is such an important project because, again, people who do not know all of this software, because some people will say, well, I can just go and install Zubuntu and install the same software the Ubuntu Studio has. That's if you know what that software is. Mm-hmm. Right. So Ubuntu Studio gives you that whole package together with your audio that you can start yeah. using right away. And that's kind of what makes it amazing. Yeah, QJack, uh, QJack CTL is also QJack control. And it's a front-end GUI for controlling Jack back-end stuff. And it's a, the Q is a cute application. Gotcha. Oh, wow. yeah. And nice. uh, our door is like a digital production thing. So you can create synthesized music and stuff like that with it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you. So going on to some distro news. Um, the first distro that we're going to talk about today um, is... It's something that came about uh, and we heard of it in our Telegram group. Um, and it's, and I'm going to probably murder this name, so I apologize because I have no idea what he was talking about when he says it celebrates Star Wars. Uh, but it's Draugr OS 7.3.7. Now, it was a distro that was released on the 4th of May this year. May the 4th be with you, Zeb. That's the Star Wars reference. I know the, I know the 4th of May is. <laughs> is that the only know, thing? 
I don't that's know the cool. only thing. That's the celebrating Star Wars. Like oh, the, I see. On, on May 4th, may the 4th be with May you, Draugr was released. But isn't Draugr something to do with Star Wars as well? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Maybe. Well, now that you mention it, it could. We yeah. need a Star Wars fan to tell us. <laughs> I'm so, Star Trek. Yeah. <clears throat> so what he's talking about is this OS is focused on being fast and great for gaming. Um, Draugr is built off low-latency Linux kernel. Um, he uses a modified XFCE desktop that focuses on performance and stability, built off of Zubuntu 18.04. Um, and, and because he's obviously trying to do it for the gaming side, he's included things like Steam and Play on Linux. Um, now, I have actually um, installed this on, on, on bare metal and, and tried to use it. Um, and I get where he's coming from because he's trying to emulate like the gaming consoles. Mm -hmm. so it was a bit weird as a traditional um, Linux user to have the XFC panel 10 times larger than normal and probably a third down from the top. So it looks like a nice bar of controls. Mm. Um, but what I found strange about that setup was when you opened, and let's say you was using it on a laptop and you opened up your screen full, full screen, the menu was gone. It was disappeared. And on my setup with three monitors, I couldn't work out how to get back to it. But if you're going to be using it on a laptop, and I would imagine that you, you're not going to worry about that sort of thing. But as a distro in itself, um, it worked really, really well. Whether it was quicker than Zubuntu, I couldn't really say. But he's obviously spent an awful long time putting this together. Mm. Um, and, it, and it's great to think that one person can come up with something so polished um so so more power to his elbow did any of you guys try it i i did um it <laughs> yeah I, I think it's very interesting it's themed very nice um you know overall because it reminded me I, I think it's the ps3 that had a very similar setup where the bar kind of goes across the middle and you yeah. go through the menus i actually expected that bar to scroll yeah you know, because I thought that would be a neat effect within there if they, they could figure that out within the XFC4 panel that they're utilizing. But that's not there. That's kind of like a static bar across the middle of your screen. So it's a little weird. Uh, you can move it, obviously. It's XFCE, so it takes like three seconds. And mm. the icons are very big. Um, there's some gaming things that they've put in there. For instance, there's no pre-installed games, but there's a Draugr store which has games and game emulators and things in there. It's on a later kernel, and it uses one of the Licorix, is that how you say it, Licorix kernel versions, which are supposed to be faster, I guess, for gaming or give you more performance and that type of stuff. So, um, you know, it utilizes some of those options. So I guess in that way, for later hardware, Vulcan support, Mesa, you know, um, having the latest drivers for your stuff, it would have those advantages being on a later kernel. Mm -hmm. I mean... It was interesting. I, I, I think that maybe if you were setting up maybe your own home entertainment uh, center. Yeah. Sounds like a media center. And things yeah. like that. I could see a great application for it there. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't run it as a desktop, a standard desktop. And I don't necessarily think that's what he meant it for. Although I'm sure you could just, like I said, move the panels down and customize it and all that type mm -hmm. of stuff. But it's interesting. I think it's a very new distro. I think it will be interesting to see what he does with it and some of the new things he can add in there. Um, but it, 
unless I hear some amazing news, it's not something that's going to be on the top of my list to, to just run back to. Right it away. sounds cool. it sounds like an interesting idea. It sounds like a combination of media center and like set top box console thing. So if if that's if that's what their goal is, that sounds like an interesting you know venture to go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have I haven't given it personally given it a chance yet. So uh, unfortunately, I can't really give any opinion on like the overall like feel of it or anything. Mm-hmm. But what I can give an opinion on is Plasma 5.14 beta. This is the one he knows. That's not the only one I know. It just no, happens to be the close next one that I would be promoting. Anyway, uh, so Plasma 5.14 had a beta release, release recently. And there's a lot of interesting ideas that they've, they've pr- provided, uh, including some you know, updates to discover that are going to be able to use firmware upgrades and like more, uh, improved support for snaps and flat packs and things like that. And they've also had a lot of compatibility with like the, uh, the desktop integration system with various browser stuff. And, you know, overall there's just a lot of cool things that, you know, that's coming up with it. And I think that, you know, there's the, probably the most important thing is that they're doing a lot of polish to it. So like mm-hmm. it, small pieces that might not seem that important all combined together makes it a, like a, a really good experience in my in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And where would you get something like this? Would it be like the unstable developers edition of Neon where you'd yes. see this first? I'm on Arch. I'll get it first. <laughs> so uh, technically as far as it goes from like this particular version is the beta. So the only way mm-hmm. to get it that I know of is either in Arch testing or in... Uh, tumbleweed testing right. or in the developer version of neon so that it is possible to get in the neon if you wanted to but that the 5.14 would be on neon would still be a 1604 version i'm pretty sure it of might course, not yeah. it might not be but i'm pretty sure because I'm, I'm not sure like what if they have multiple levels that are 1604 beta or like how how are they handling the beta of both the iso and as far as the de itself like i don't think they have a separation Ooh. yet so the, that you could get it with Arch as well, but as far as like when it first when it come, when it actually releases, which will be in October, they will be available for Neon, Arch, and Tumbleweed probably roughly around the same time. Uh, neon might be mm-hmm. faster than everything else, just because you know the people mm-hmm. who are making Neon well, nice. are also the people making Plasma, so it kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. makes cool. it easier for them to do it. Well, Michael, you got your Plasma news in, but we're going to go to something different now. Wow, right? that quick. We're going to change some stuff up and talk about the Lubuntu development newsletter that came out because we've talked about them a couple episodes ago and some of the changes that they were making. They have some other changes they're talking about. And this first one, I want to get your opinion on, Michael, because we've had debates on this before. Mm-hmm. They're switching out SM Player for VLC. Why? Why would you ever... VLC... Like, even when I set up my Arch setup and I installed VLC for something requires it, maybe it's Caden Live or whatever once you have VLC. But in, in any case, I go to play one of my videos. It just won't work. So I think I've recorded the video wrong. Then I download SM Player. It plays the video perfectly fine. Everything's good. It's not choppy. VLC seems to have been broken for a long time for me. So I can answer what I think is the reason, but I can't give it like a definitive thing. But... When it comes to VLC versus SM Player, I think MPV is the best. So uh, that's what I would pick. But I understand why they wouldn't use that one because it's a lot more. It requires you to be more intermediate level uh, in expectation because you have to know what's going to happen when you use it. 
Uh, SM, SM player. SM, yeah. Say, isn't SM player the front end for? MPV? No, no, no. It is a front end. Uh, it, a front end. Yeah. Right. M- MPV it provides its own thing. So, like, if you wanted to just use straight up MVP, you can. But uh, SM player uses MPV and M player as a back end. So you can use it if you want to. Uh, the reason I think that they chose to go to VLC is not that it's better, but that it's got market share that people expect it to be there. You know? mm. So when they and they say something, no, and someone goes, if you want to try Lubuntu and there's VLC there, they're like, oh, I know VLC. That, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Versus SM player, they're like, what's this weird esoteric player thing you want me to use? Maybe that's... Mm-hmm. You know, it's possible that that's why. Brand recognition that important over usability. Have you guys noticed any issues with VLC lately? I used to be the biggest VLC fan on the planet, and then it just seems to keep going, getting worse and worse and worse. I ran in VLC many years ago because of all the problems it has, especially with the artifacting where there's these green weird symbols and stuff. It's it's woeful. And no matter what, I mean, they've got an awful lot of settings that you can change. But no matter what setting you put it on, within about 10 or 15 seconds of a video starting, you'll get all this fuzziness for about five seconds and it comes yep. down again. So I think, okay, I'm now going to try blend. Now that didn't work. I'm going to go and try something else. That didn't work. Okay. Uninstall, SM player. Oh, look, working. And then yeah. you sit down and watch what you want to watch. So yeah. I think you're right though. It is the market share. Um, Especially if they're going to try to go for like Windows users, they're going to expect VLC. And if they see it, it's, it's good for them. Whether it happens mm-hmm. to be the better player, I would have to say it's not, but you know. Yeah. It kind of makes sense, the decision. So I'll take the next um, couple of uh, bits on this uh, development letter here, only because it will then stop Michael chatting on about KDE for the next four and a half hours. Wow, that's nice. just, well done. Yeah, that's so true. we've got, got something called Nomax for LX Image hyphen QT. Um, now I can probably guess what LX Image QT is, but what's Nomax? I don't know, actually. Anybody know? Uh, it's an area where no Mac computers are allowed. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. So I agree with that. That's what it should yes, be. You're not so allowed to have, to have no Mac. So we to do a bit of research on that one, then we'll come back yeah, to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, this is the bit I wanted to skip over, because it's got KDE 5 LibreOffice front end instead of the KDE 4 front end. So, yep, they're using a lot it's of It's a KDE great front. idea. Of course. I'm, I'm guessing because it's QT based. No, it's, it's it is QT based, but the reason it's because LibreOffice, uh, in in as far as a cute version of LibreOffice or the, the Plasma integration of LibreOffice, it's always been pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And now, so most people who are using Plasma would also just use the GTK version of LibreOffice, and so they didn't have to deal with the bad implementation. But the KDE five implementation has been much much improved. So our patrons have come to our rescue and have discovered Nomax is an image viewer. And oh, right. so there you go. That's good. Excellent. Then they have the Calamari's installer in here. But here, I think, is the most exciting news out of the whole thing. One of the changes includes a new member to their Lubuntu artwork team. Our very own patron, Wendy Hill, is that wow. new member of that. Wendy is a patron of the show, an amazing photographer. And this was super exciting because I was just reading through the news item and I see that name and I'm like, that's really familiar. (laughs) I think I know who that is. (laughs) And we've had a lot of people coming in asking for us to do an interview with Wendy to talk about her photography because when we had her on last, it was just a bunch of questions were piling in and people wanted it. So guess what we're going to do? We had a chance to talk with Wendy this week to get some more insight on her Linux journey and workflow and how she uses Linux 
Today we have a very special guest with us is Wendy from went from Wendy Hill Photographies and also the Destination Linux Telegram group and she does a lot of incredible photography work at her her website. You can check out all the photos at wendyhillphoto.com. So Wendy, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We have a few questions that we got to ask you. So um, back on episode 81, you made an appearance in the outtakes and ever since then you've been getting a nice flow of questions about your business and how you do photography and Linux. So we thought it would be great to have you on the here on here to discuss it. Awesome. I so, love to talk about photography. So <laughs> there you go. We'll have you talking about photography. People got really excited during that episode. In fact, they asked for in the comments, can you interview Wendy? So we're giving in to the fans. This is what they wanted. And I think it's really interesting because we've been asking the question a lot recently about how do you use Linux? And that could be from a small business perspective, that could be from a personal perspective, but you kind of have both in here, which I think it makes it really interesting to kind of uncover. So let's start with where we start with most people and talk about your journey with Linux regarding how you got started. So how did you find Linux? How did you eventually come into this beautiful community we love? It started because I was getting really mad at Windows. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the best so way. Yeah, it was um, January 2016. Every time I tipped down at my computer, I would fight with it longer than I actually got time to do anything on it. And there were programs on there that it would update and it would remove the programs that I wanted. So I decided I was done and I was going to go find something else. And thankfully, I found Linux and the awesome community that's around it. Nice. Nice. So you found Linux. And you've obviously done a little bit of uh, distro hopping, etc. So, um, what distro and desktop are you currently using as your daily driver? Because it'd be interesting to me for you to explain to the people why it's peppermint. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, and that's one on my my hopping list. But my regular distro since May has been Kubuntu 1804. Yes, yeah, the, the best option. It's been awesome. <laughs> yeah. Wendy. I thought you were on Fedora. I thought we the, there was a Fedora gnome bond that we had. What happened? Were you always on Kubuntu? I still love Fedora. No, I, I was on a Fedora base for a long time. How dare you, But Michael. one of the issues lately <laughs> has been I've had a harder time getting the newest software on a Fedora base, and I didn't think I'd mm -hmm. ever say that. Hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah, and but also you know the benefit of Kubuntu being such a fantastic option. So oh, whatever, Michael. It's <laughs> true, but still. <clears throat> well, specifically eighteen oh four. But anyway, uh, so what you, what got you into photography, Wendy? I got my first digital camera just before my oldest child was born, and then I played with it for about ten years, just enjoying taking pictures, and then realized, you know, I could do this for a living. I could have fun, and make some money while doing it. Nice. That's the best way to start something like if you just kind of like fall into it and it's even it's like the best experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've known a lot of photographers, people who are interested in photography. They all have that dream of taking it to the next level, but most of them never quite make that jump. They kind of get scared. It's a very there's a lot of competition mm -hmm. in this industry. Um, there's a lot of different types of photography in there. So what photography did you start out with and did you stick with that? Is that the same kind of photography you do today? So there are, there are so many different kinds of photography. It is crazy when you start digging into the different categories. And 
I knew I wanted to take it professional, but I did not want to do senior photographer. I did not want to do weddings and I did, <laughs> did not want to do families. That was just not on my list. Uh, for one of those that is a lot of evenings and it's a lot of weekends to so do that type of photography. And I wanted something that, you know, while I do do can be fast paced, um, I could also kind of do it slowly in my own little studio. And so food and product have become my number one photography genres. Mm -hmm. And then I also do some event photography. And as far as people go, I like the environmental portraiture. So I'm in their space, I'm in their environment and capturing that essence of who they are and how they work in that space. Nice. Yeah. I mean, and the, and the good thing about fruit and products is they can't run around and they don't scream around in the studio. Mm. Don't pose them for that photograph. And just before you click, they're off playing with something else. They Zeb, you've play. taken kids to have <laughs> the photos taken before I sent. Cause I yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've tried to do the family photograph and, we ended up coming away. Yeah, we paid the poor chap his money, but it was never going to work. So when we got home, we did our own. So that, that, was, that was quite fun. Well, so, one of the hardest parts about food is you go grocery shopping for, okay, I've got this recipe. I'm going to make this thing. And you have to individually pick out every single thing you're putting in it. How does it look? Does it have any blemishes? How is that going to look on camera? And product is just getting it in the right light and you still have to keep it there. Sometimes it doesn't want to stay where you want it to stay. <laughs> and that's a battle in and of its own. But if you yell at it, it doesn't cry. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's always a bonus. Yeah. So have your local shops got used to you now going into them and like fingering 24 different apples before you've picked the right one sort of thing? <laughs> you know, people look at you funny in the grocery stores. You're like, no, that strawberry won't work. That strawberry won't work. <laughs> that kind of thing yeah they look at you like you're a little crazy but it's worth it it's mm -hmm. worth spending the extra time to get the produce that looks the best nice so you obviously have um, an artistic eye and you know the sort of like the color the composition and how w well things work so you seem to have given that a little twist because you've recently joined the Lubuntu artwork team so tell us how that came about and what's piqued your interest that you want to sort of branch out a little bit well, I, I've always wanted to help. Since I got started, I wanted to find a way to help. And I'd done some playing with wallpapers and shared them in the Telegram group. And um, I told Simon, you know, hey, if you ever need help, let me know. And I guess it's been a couple of weeks ago now. He's like, would you like to join the artwork team? Sure. <laughs> Not really knowing what all, <laughs> all that entailed. Absolutely. You know, I'd love to help out. And in the last couple of weeks, I've learned some basic QML. And I'm now learning HTML as, as part of helping out. Nice. So a lot more than I thought, but it's it's been great. It's been a lot of fun. That's, <laughs> awesome. That's fantastic. And I love that you decided to get involved, but use your craft and to, to, to kind of get as that stepping stone to get in there. And I think that's an important thing. You don't necessarily have to go learn a whole new skill to get in there and help out the Linux community. You can utilize, especially your craft, you can utilize your craft to help out those that are already there. So are you more, do you find yourself as being an artist and a photographer critical of things like the wallpapers that distros decide to utilize and their layout and theming? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily critical. I know what I like, 
So for me, everything is dark themed. I really? am definitely a dark themed fan. Yeah, it's easier on the eyes for mm-hmm. me. I'm a migraine sufferer, and so bright whites are horrible. Yeah, there's there's actually been like shown like tests depending on what kind of thing you're consuming. The darker the 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 color is better for long term usage. And also, if you like, if you have like a more of a red tint, it's even better too. Yeah, and these are um, blue light filtering glasses. So between that and the dark nice. themes, yeah, I'm set. Nice. So, so I would imagine that you know you've done something unique in that number one, you're a photographer and you actually took it to the next level and turned it into a business. Then you pick the products that you're going to, the type of photography that you're going to do. But then you took an unusual road that I'm assuming not a ton of photographers that you may partner with or meet have taken, which is you decided you were going to use Linux products instead of Windows. So what kind of issues did you face during that time period of figuring out, hey, I'm going to be a photographer and I'm going to do it on Linux? Some of the hardest things are I see... I see something I really like. I'll watch a video, a tutorial on this, this way of working with an image or manipulating something. And I'm like, I want to try that. That might be something I want to incorporate in my style. But now I'm not using the same tools and I've got to figure out how do I transfer that into the tools that I'm using. Yes. Things are named different. Buttons are different. Yeah, all of that is yeah. So, so what are the, what are the advantages you have you had using Linux? One of the biggest advantages is during the portfolio building process. It is really expensive sometimes just to build your portfolio before you are even getting jobs. You know, you're spending money on on food and travel and just the equipment in and of itself. So, I have two camera bodies that I take with me on every single job because if one fails, I can't say, hey, guess what guys, I'm gonna have to come back later. <laughs> I have to have something that, that works. So um, it was nice to be able to have tools for post-production that wasn't costing me an arm and a leg every month. Mm-hmm. That's a huge advantage yeah. in the Linux world because that that software that a lot of photographers utilize within Windows is extraordinarily expensive because you can't just go with, generally, you're not going to go with the base Adobe products. You're going for the pro Adobe products and those licenses are just astounding. Yeah. 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 They're pretty ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And another nice thing is workflow wise, I don't have to worry about a proprietary company changing things in my workflow that then I can't get back. Hmm. That's a good That's one. A good I think yeah. about. So you mentioned uh, that you carry a couple cameras or camera bodies to when you when you go to do shoots and stuff like that. So what kind of camera do you use typically? I use a Nikon D seventy two hundred right now. Nice, nice. So no <laughs> Canon in there. What's right. what's wrong? So, what's wrong with Canon? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with Canon. Don't lie. Tell us the <laughs> truth. I know photographers enough that you guys are all sworn to your brand. You will not budge from a specific brand. I am. I am sworn to my brand, but I am sworn to my brand because of, and I'm going to drop a photography term, the glass. So if you hear a photographer talking about the glass, they're talking about their lenses. And one reason I love Nikon is because they have used the same mount since 1979. So you can get the old lenses and they will attach to current 
brand new camera bodies. The wow. glass is still beautiful. It may be manual focus, but you can create a wide variety of lenses in your photography arsenal without having to spend so much. Nice. Mm -hmm. So you can just, could you, could you find like something that's like from the seventies and, and actually find function in, in a newer body now? Some of the older ones, um, pre-1979, you could make changes to them and attach them to a current body. Mm -hmm. But I have lenses from like the early 1980s that I love and I use all the time. Nice. My Sorry. macro focus, my macro lens, that one is from 1982, I think. It's my favorite. Nice. So this is going to be like kind of like a silly question, but you know, it, it, it's a fair point too. Uh, <laughs> When you talk to other photographers in the space or just in any type of photographer and you tell them that you use Linux, do they look at you like you're crazy? <laughs> yeah, they have no idea what to say. They just don't know what to say. They don't have a response. You, do <laughs> you don't use Lightroom? No. <laughs> don't use Photoshop? No. How do you get stuff done? Like they really just don't know what to say because that is so ingrained in Right. In this type of work, especially in some of the professional groups that I'm involved in. I even mentioned something, oh, I did this in GIMP or whatever, and they just, they, they don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, it's not only ingrained in the rooms, because most times when you're learning to be a photographer, those things, you'll go to school, it will it would be ingrained there that those are the products you're going to use. In the books that you get are probably ingrained of, you know, okay, open Adobe Photoshop to do this. It's It's pretty much everywhere. So it's so unique that you kind of decided, I'm not going to go down that path, even though all the training and everything else is kind of based in that Windows world, I'm going to go down this Linux path. And it was really a smart business decision too, because of the fact that you get to save money along the way and in small business when you're starting off, that's everything. The bottom line is everything for you, especially there. So that I think is super unique. Well, and one of the advantages, I went to um, talk to a local school. They did a photography week. And so I went and participated in that and talking to the teachers afterwards, they said, well, we're coming up on like editing our photos we don't know what to do. And I was able to share these free and open source options with them so they could share them with the children there at school and they could edit their own photos and not have to buy licenses for it. That's awesome. So talking about that, that software that photographers can use in Linux, um, what are your go-to um, software products that you use for Linux? Yeah, I have four major software items that I use. And the first one is display cal because the colors on my monitors have to be right. Mm -hmm. This is one reason my photographers are not big distro hoppers because it takes forever to get your <laughs> monitor calibrated. And then if you have three to calibrate, that is an all day project. So that is number one. If you use Solus, that is in their repos. Wow. Nice. Everywhere else, I have to go get it directly from the website. So that's a bonus for Solus. It is in their repos. Very cool. The next piece of software I use is a Rapid Photo Downloader. Nice. And one reason I have come to love that program is I can set job codes in it. So I have my base renaming set up, which is my business name. Then I'll have a job code 
a date and then a specific number for that photo. And I can change the job code every time I go to download. So if it's my family pictures, I can type family. We were camping this weekend. Or if it was mm. for a job, I can put the business name in there. And it really helps me keep my images together and named properly so I can find them again. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. always good. Like the, the yeah. idea of just having that one piece that seems like a, a super simple option is so valuable. And just to have that, it kind of makes the workflow much more sustainable. Yeah, it's so much easier. Before I found that, and you know, before professionally, just trying to find pictures of my kids before that is an absolute mess. I don't remember what date that was, but if I could type in the event we were at, then I can get it pulled up so much faster. And so knowing yeah. that if a client comes back and say, hey, I need these photos, I can just type in the business name, those images will pop up and I can find the right one. Nice. So what do you use for your like uh, manipulation of the images? Do you use something like GIMP mostly or is it something like Darktable? Both. I actually use both of those. So Darktable, I'll bring the images into Darktable first and then make my basic edits if I need them. Nice. So adjusting color if I have to. Um, usually it's more clarity stuff bringing out what I need. GIMP is used if I have multiple layers or if there's stuff that I really have to touch up. Chocolate yeah. is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so it may look gorgeous on pictures, but editing chocolate is an absolute nightmare. Not only do you have to have the room temperature controlled, you have to use gloves and touch it very, very little, but you still have hours of editing. Afterwards. I never thought about that. Plus the temptation <laughs> to eat it would be so high. <laughs> Is that 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 Last is that is the I worst? Chocolate, my three-year-old came in and started eating. <laughs> no, brilliant. Good thing that was you know just for me, but yeah, that that's one of those things that needs to be locked up when not using it. <laughs> so, as a part of being a photographer, you also are a small business owner, and we talked about some of the things you've used from the photography standpoint, but how do you leverage Linux to manage your business such as financials or just organization in general for a small business, et cetera? So that is one thing that I actually need help with. There are nice. so many programs out there. Um, my husband is also a small business owner and we just have um, spreadsheets in which we're managing most of that stuff. But I would love to see some other options for ways that we can manage that stuff, there's there's options and they can be overwhelming. Yeah. So, is is your look? Are you looking for something that's like an invoicing system, an inventory system, or or like a combination, or like like what all? What are you kind of looking for? A combination would be nice. My husband doesn't need so much of an invoicing system, but I do. Okay. Uh, well, there's a piece of software that's called Invoice Ninja. It's a fantastic name and a fantastic software. Awesome. Yeah, because you have to utilize Linux for your your business, Michael, because you're you're you own your own business. So yeah. is that what you utilize for your? I use, I use Invoice Ninja, and I have for many years, and it is undeniably the best I've used. I've tried probably twenty different options, and it's always it like when I first started using Invoice Ninja, it had everything that everything else had, and a ton more. It has like a task system, inventory system, invoicing system, quote system. Uh, they just recently added like a 
uh, a group talk system, things like that, like all kinds of stuff. Like it's it's a fantastic software and it is open source and it's self-hostable so you can have it like accessible from anywhere. And nice. it does, they do have this one thing where it's kind of annoying, but at the same time, the, the price is ridiculously reasonable. It's they have this white labeling system so that if you don't pay for it, it says made by Invoice Ninja at the bottom of your invoice. If you pay for it, it's twenty dollars per year, and that's it. Oh, that's not bad at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally good. So there's there's an option for that. Nice. Awesome. Thank you. So I'm sure you get asked this question a lot uh, as a photographer, um, and it's a very popular hobby. And I think I personally asked you this question as well within the Telegram group. So what is too. a good entry level um, DSLR camera for someone to get started with? I absolutely love the Nikon D3400. That's the their most entry level camera. And one thing that I love about it is on the display in the back, as you adjust certain settings, you can see a graphical representation of those adjustments nice. on the display. Nice. So it was a great one to learn from and really good to learn how to use those settings and see, because Aperture is not intuitive at all. It's not intuitive. Hmm. So when you, the smallest number is actually the biggest opening on your lens. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it is so nice to, as you're learning, change that dial and see, oh, I'm going the opposite direction of the way I want to go. Yeah. I love that. That is such good advice and something that has confused me to death. And I'm so glad for you to say that, that I'm not alone in there because I've got, I've had DSLRs over the years and generally I, I'll go get a dummies book in the camera and I'll sit there with the best of intentions and even though I'm a tech geek, I'll look through it all and be like, all right, so auto mode it is. And just start <laughs> taking my pictures. So it, I, that kind yeah. of advice with that type of camera does help because then the stuff that you're reading starts to make a little more sense as you're messing with it. Because anytime I've tried to manual stuff, my photos are so horrible. You know, not that they're good on auto, but, you know, at least it's clear. <laughs> Photography has its own geek language. It has its own language that you have to learn, and that takes time. Yep. Yep. And so, like when you, I'm just curious. So, how often when people ask you for these, this, these tips about like the entry level, when you talk to people, how often do you give them tips and then they go, that's too much? I'm going to go get like a smartphone or something. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really up to how bad do you, do you want to learn? that yeah. that thing and one thing i tell people is you can go buy a fancy camera but it's not going to make your pictures any better than they are now it's not the camera that makes good pictures it's knowing how to use the light and how to set things up so if you don't want to learn that don't go spend money on the camera because it's not going to do you any good that's a good Use point. the one from your, your phone, get the pictures, save those memories, and don't spend money on the camera. So as a photographer, whose lighting out of Michael, me, and Zeb's is the best here? <laughs> this is important. Great. Oh, look at that. Well done, Wendy. Perfect. Well done. All right. So any books or training programs you recommend for those since some people are going to be taking this advice, going and getting that camera? Is there anything that you took that really helped you kind of take, get, take your photography to the next level as you were learning? 
Creative Live is actually an amazing resource, um, especially when they have classes on sale. They are packed with so much information and they have professionals have years and years of experience. So you don't have to spend so much money at a college class if you don't want to. You can do it from your home and they even offer some of their, their classes free. And so that is definitely a great place to start. Nice. Um, but even better, just play with it. If you want to take pictures of food, move the light around. If you're using a window, what does it look like if my light is behind my fruit? What does it look like if it's in front of, to the side? <laughs> you get the most from just playing with it. Nice. That is good to know. I, I, there's kind of like... I, I think the experience of just trying to play with something is is probably like the best tips because it's you know there's there's books that you can read and, and training programs you can go to, but nothing's going to replace the actual effort of going through it. Hands-on experience, right? Yeah. yeah, it's it's one of those things you really need to just do, and if you're serious about becoming professional, stepping out of that that zone of this is a fun hobby to I want to make money at it, I really recommend finding a mentor. <laughs> I have a commercial photography mentor. He is absolutely amazing. And I know I can go with him to him with questions. Hey, I've got, you know, this thing coming up. I want to try this. And he will help me work through things and give me honest feedback. Because I can't show it to my family because they're going to be, oh, that's fantastic. Whereas <laughs> yeah. if I show it to him, he'll be like, I can see where you're going here, but what if we do this and this? What if we do yeah. like this? That's a good point. I mean, that's that's something I didn't think of. Um, and also, uh, Ryan should probably talk to someone about podcasting mentorship. And, <laughs> so. Wow. <laughs> well, just because of the lighting question that you know she was going to say you have terrible lighting? Well, I, yeah, I knew I had terrible lighting. I was going to say Zeb probably has the best, but still. <laughs> Whoa. Well, and I just have a simple up lighter in my room. That's all I use, just an up lighter. Wendy's probably thinking you all have terrible lighting. <laughs> it's probably true. Oh, no. It's really true. Yeah. So one, one question I've got for you, and it isn't in, in the list here, um, but I went out and bought that um, Nokia camera, and you're right, it is superb. It just feels great in the hands. The controls are very easy. But there is a myriad of controls to use and things to do. So what I'm trying to do is, I went out and I just took about 500 photographs just to get the feel of the camera. And then I thought, right, I'm going to start now playing with this and then I'm going to play with that. And then, and then when I get home, I look at the photographs and think, what did I do with that one? How did I change it? Why does that one look different? <laughs> so is it best that when you go out just to say, right, today I'm going to see what this feature does and only play with the one feature to save the, the confusion? What tips would you give there? That that definitely helps a lot. If I'm trying something new, I have a notepad with me and I'm taking notes. How far oh. away is my camera from my subject? How far away is my light source? Where is it positioned? So if I find something that I like, I can go back to my notebook and do that again because I've got the information right nice. there. Brilliant. That's a, that's a good tip. Thank you. I'll, I'll give that a try and let you know. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, what? So, what are your um, some new photography projects that you're working on that we can look forward to? So, I have a great one coming up this weekend, and actually, by the time uh, most people see it, it'll already be over. But I have been working with this 
fantastic uh, nonprofit organization and they put on um, Miss Africa America or goodness now I can't remember exactly how it goes but Miss Africa Idaho there we go um, and so I did their fundraiser in May and they have they'll actually be crowning their queen this weekend nice yeah and I, I love this organization they um, girls that have come over here from Africa they start helping them as they're adjusting to life here hmm. and then they get to share their culture from over there with us so that that's how nice. they win how well do they present their culture how well do they share it with others in representing that that area and the gal who puts it on Winnie she is she's absolutely amazing it's a great charity and it's been so much fun to work with it is super important to me that charities have good images right you want your business to have good images because mm -hmm. that's what catches people's eye right yeah i'm going to a website because i'm going to a a restaurant for the first time i want to look at their food yeah well the mm -hmm. best way that charities can get uh, more money flow so they can help more people so they can give bigger scholarships or more of them in this case is to make sure that they have great images to represent that charity mm -hmm. yeah and explain so their I'm mission so and stuff like that yeah yeah absolutely and so I'm, I'm so excited to be helping them out and to be a part of this particular charity and Sounds then, awesome. um, yeah, mm. one of the, I had <laughs> an injury this summer. And so that kind of put me out of the running for, for most work. So I've decided that now that things are getting better, I'm going to do some more portfolio building, just tear apart the portfolio and redo it. Mm -hmm. nice. Since I was in my favorite local coffee shop this morning, they are putting up a new menu of delicious sounding bagel sandwiches. And so. I offered nice. to shoot a bunch of their new sandwiches. Yeah. As part of my portfolio. Do you get some free samples when you're doing this from them? Like I know you're supposed to f photograph it, but when you're done, do you eat it? Are you allowed to, it, is that a no, no? It depends on, <laughs> on the job and uh -huh. who you're shooting the food for. Um, it typically doesn't go to waste, but just because I'm the one photographing it doesn't mean I'm the one who gets to. Wow, that's a horrible crime right there. They need <laughs> they're so rude. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So but so anyway, uh Wendy, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your Linux journey with us. And uh so and everyone, if you would like to, you can check out Wendy's photos at wendyhillphoto.com. And I do warn you though that the the shots of the food will guarantee to make you hungry. Probably about yeah, like, forty five seconds. Like I'm I'm starving right now. I will not go to that site till I've eaten. Yeah. Exactly. That's the best compliment ever. <laughs> so thank you, Wendy, for sharing your Linux journey with us and we look forward to seeing what your work with Lubuntu in the near future and all your photography projects. So next up in the show is MX adds a flat pack support for their MX package installer. And this is really cool because it it kind of it feels like a synaptics installer that allows you to get access to the flat hub and things like that, which, you know, if, if you've ever used um, a variety of different software installers, so depending, depending on what your distro is, there's sometimes there, you can't really tell if it's a flat pack or not, or 
you know, it could be like a dev file. Or actually, sometimes we'll have multiple entries that you really, you, you, it doesn't give you an option. And this is a way that you can go directly to a tab for flat packs and just kind of figure out what you want. And uh, that's that's a pretty cool. Nice. Yeah, Dolphin's a huge friend of the community, right? He shows up oh, in yeah. a destination Linux Telegram. He is one of those people who's come on to, you know, uh, my channel and left kind comments and supporting comments. And he's just an all-around amazing person who loves Linux. And we've had him on the show before for interviews. And here he's gone and created this new tool. Uh, flat packs for some people, if you're used to using them, it's not that daunting. But in comparison to snaps, I think flat packs are a little more difficult to kind of figure out. The well, you have to know where the, for. you have to know which hub it's in and what remote you have to go to. And then also yeah. you have to understand what a remote is and things like that. So it's, it, it can be in order. It's pretty much, I'd have to typically just go to the website that has the flat pack and just copy the command that they want because I have to remember which, which server is it on and things like that. So yep. I, this is a much nicer approach. Yeah, and it kind of lays out for benefit for new users as they can see what flat packs are kind of available within this tabbed view uh, that they can just go there and install and make things easy. And a lot of folks recently are kind of going back to MX lately in our Telegram group and talking about it. And everything I see is, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I love it. It's fantastic. It's great. So many compliments for it. And this type of stuff just makes it friendlier and easier to utilize these type of distros and Dolphin is all about uh, making the distro very approachable for everyone. And it's always been one of my favorites. It's always on my top 10 uh, list of distros of all time. So I, I think it's just a fantastic work that he's done here. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's also a testament to the MX Linux community themselves as well, um, because I think Michael hit it on the head. Using Snaps is easy. Snap install, give it a name, and if it's got it, it'll install it. Flat packs just left me cold. So the fact that you can now have something that's going to be a point, tick a box and go install is going to make it so much easier. But that's what the MX Linux community is about. Their users come up with a problem and the mm -hmm. developers provide a solution. And it's never an overly technical solution. It's always something that the average Joe user can just come along and use. And I think that's absolutely great. Yep, totally agree. Unlike what's <laughs> happening on our next. No, um, this is good. Zeb. It's it's it's, it's a good. Nice, but it's not user friendly because I haven't. I wouldn't even have the first clue how to implement it. But we'll get onto that okay, in a moment. Because what we've now got is a full Ubuntu desktop image in Windows 10 Pro. Now stop shivering. Yes, <laughs> we've talked about Linux and Windows in a title. So there's some very interesting news. Many may know you can run Linux on Windows using the Windows subsystem for Linux, the WSL. Yep. Did we? Okay. Um, <laughs> but that left you with just a terminal and no GUI desktop. Now, the reason why it's so alien to me was if you're going to use Windows, Windows. If you're going to use Linux, use Linux. Why would you want to port a section of Linux into Windows? And then somebody came along, well, you know, some people just can't use Linux in their full-time job, but it is a lot easier for managing servers. So there they are with their Windows machines and their Windows servers with this full Ubuntu subsystem in their machines. And now they can manage their remote Linux servers from within Windows. Mm -hmm. Because senior management won't move away from that 
evil machine um, that's called Microsoft. Yep. So it then goes on to say this changed now with the release of an optimized full Ubuntu desktop installation on Hyper-V. Over to you guys because I haven't got a clue what they're talking about. <laughs> Hyper-V is, is Microsoft's uh, virtual, virtualization system. And so it, why didn't they call it that? Well, that's well. It's hyper virtualization, <laughs> I guess. I don't. It's because hyper V sounds cool. It's edgy. Yeah, it's hyper V. It's edgy. Yeah. 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 But so anyway, this is cool. The the, the 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 Windows subsystem for Linux can be argued whether or not that's a good thing because it presents an uh, an opportunity for people who needed to use Linux codes. You know, and without, but aren't able to use the Linux system without, you know, they have requirements for certain applications or something, and it makes it easier for them. And it also makes it possible for you can gradually convince people to use certain systems. So, like for example, a system administrator could be like introduced to certain cool tools that are like Bash related and stuff like that. Scripting that type of stuff, right. absolutely. So th yep. that that one is that one's a, a, a re you can have an argument whether it's good or bad and this one kind of you could it's it's much better that you can say it's good because it has a full support with hyper-v so it allows you to have an actual full ex experience with the with ubuntu and experience the whole desktop and, and not just the command line so it could be even more you know acceptable to other or accessible to other people so you know, people who yeah, are not necessarily sysadmins this is important because i got I got a, <laughs> I got an email from someone who was like, "Hey, I was really inspired by some of your videos, and I learned that you could install Linux on Windows." So I went and followed the instructions, and I'm stuck at a terminal. How do I get into the GUI? And I knew what they had done. They had they had basically installed the Linux subsystem within Windows and expected that to actually be Linux, right? Yeah. So they're staring mm -hmm. at this thing, assuming this is Linux, and I'm like. Not quite. We got that's not that's not really what you, the tool you should be using yeah. for. And I thought some people were going to get confused with that, and in fact, they did. Um, this does allow for a much faster virtualization of Ubuntu within Windows, so the performance is going to be superior. It's going to be faster, and you know you have things like improved clipboard integration, desktop resizing, better shared folders, mouse transitions between host and guest, so people can really have both of those up and be able to do their work not necessarily meant for i guess you could as a normal user but probably more meant for multiple environments in the business where you have multiple operating systems that you're interacting with such as network admins and things like that i think it's super cool technology i'm very happy that it's available uh, for individuals who need that type of power for everyone else, they're just filthy dual booters, though, who want to touch Windows. <laughs> they're mm -hmm. just filthy dual booters. They're barbarians. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> certainly, this seemed um, overly complicated. Um, and for the average user, I mean, you guys are probably going to shudder, but I got my first taste of uh, Ubuntu via Wubi back in the day, mm -hmm. which was a Linux installer that then, if you didn't like what it had done at the end of it, you just deleted Wubi and, and Linux was gone. So... But it this, kind of offers a similar thing, actually. Except it's an awful lot more complicated to get set up, unless I was reading it wrong. Well, I mean, it's it's more complicated now. Like this is mm -hmm. the first version they've introduced it, and it, is, it still requires you to use the premium version or the pro version of Windows 10. And it, I'm not sure if it requires a developer mode or not, like the web subsystem does. But mm -hmm. it, it it is not as easy as Wubi used to be, but it does allow for the same benefits of having a, you know, a tutorial from 
you know, Microsoft or Ubuntu or Canonical to show you how to do it rather than having to set up a whole virtual, like a virtual box and then trying to figure out the ISO thing and where do you get the ISOs from and stuff like that. It does kind of narrow the path a little bit. So maybe in the future they'll make it a much easier way to do it. So if they had like a basic installer that will be used to provide, that would be a fantastic option for people who just want to try it out and are, Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of like wanting to dabble with it. So this could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. We don't we don't really know for sure. Mm-hmm. Filthy dual booters. <laughs> sure. Okay. So something that else could is, is probably you know it sounds like it could be a good thing, and um, it might seem like a little bit confusing, or you know it might seem like it's um, well anyway. So up next in the show, we you know Linus has announced that he's taking a break. And it's not like a, it's just a completely temporary thing. He said he will be coming back to the to maintaining the kernel, but he did say that he's going to take to take some time to do some reflection and stuff like that. So uh, it's a it's a pretty interesting and a really big topic that people probably expected us to put in the very beginning of the show, but we were going to save it because you know if you know it's going to be here, then you pro- you might watch the whole thing. Well, at least that was the idea. I don't know. Yeah, now we've trapped <laughs> you into this story that's been all over the news. I think we have to cover it. Yeah, we do. And, you know, I know other, some people probably getting this particular news in there. They form their opinions on some of this stuff. But I think it's something we had to cover and uh, at least talk about here because it's it's big news. Linus has been a part of Linux from the very beginning, and he's been the maintainer in there. And he basically says, I need to change some of my behaviors. I want to apologize to the people that my personal behavior hurt and possibly drove away from kernel development entirely. Mm-hmm. So I, being newer into the Linux world, don't have the whole, didn't have the whole history. But I stayed up really late uh, <laughs> yesterday morning researching a lot of this stuff and trying to get some more perspective because it's so, people are on fire right now over this. There are conspiracy theories and things like that that are coming out. Maybe they're true, maybe they're not. The one thing I could say for sure is generally Linux is pretty open with his opinion like he's never shied away from saying this is what i'm going to do and this is not and he says he's coming back i think there are different opinions out there where people are saying oh no he's going to be pushed out and all this stuff i don't know we don't know we don't know the answer to that Mm -hmm. uh but he says he's coming back and it's interesting too because we also talk about in in the notes here some of the things that when you look at some of the comments and things that he said in the past it's there are definitely some issues there uh, yeah. that that don't belong in the tech world. and But I do think there is something to be said for the amount of pressure that someone like Linus and the other developers of the kernel are under. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about some of those stats to make sure that is front and foremost in some people's minds when they think about some of this stuff. So... Michael, one of those things is the Linux kernel sitting at the heart of millions of devices, especially when you count Android in there. Yeah, absolutely. That's no, got to be some pressure, right? I mean, that's not that's not even half of it. That's like that's probably that's just one piece of the gigantic mountain that is Linux. And if you look at like the eighty percent of the internet is running Linux, and it, it's like it's such a core piece that uh, every every supercomputer, like the top. 500 supercomputers supercomputers in the world are all Linux and mm-hmm. all Chromebooks are Linux and you know uh set-top boxes like TiVos and uh, you know Roku's and all kinds of things like basically every Android I mean, Android device but also all the Kindle devices are all powered by Linux in some way there's like 
in pretty much every Internet of Things type of product is a Linux-based thing. Now that not all of them, but a, but the this the size of Linux is such a huge, like con, like massive mountain of responsibility that he'd have to put on his shoulders in order to make sure that every every product, every service, every every server, like the internet that is depending on the product that he that he's a part of or he's controlling in a sense, like that mm -hmm. that is a huge require obligation or just a responsibility he has to deal with i mean mm -hmm. i would understand like there could be a possible like i would be i don't even i think i could handle that at all like that much pressure at all times so i can mm -hmm. understand why he would he would be so open and so come uh, forth with with his opinions and stuff like that now i would agree that you know it, it would probably be fair that he should you know take some time and reflect on you know things his behavior previously because there are some times where it does go a bit over the top Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, some, I wouldn't say extreme, but yeah, you could probably say extreme. Uh, so I, I think it's a good thing because ultimately, you know, it, it, it gives him a time to take a break and reflect on his, his behavior previously, but also how he can improve himself as a person and as well as maybe potentially improve the Linux project because he would make it, you know, like there's, a, there's been some times where people have said that they didn't want to continue working on the, pro, on the kernel because of the experience they had as a, being a part of the community. So mm -hmm. if they if if we can change that type of uh, experience, we can actually improve maybe the amount of people who contribute and the types of people who contribute and all things like that. So I think mm -hmm. ultimately it probably will be a good thing that this is happening. Yeah. And and I think that's what what people need to concentrate on. I think this whole thing has blown up um, from a storm storm and a keep up. Here's the man who for the last twenty five years has driven and kept Linux going. Yeah. Yeah. And he has said, look, do you know what? I could have done better. I should have modified my behavior. I shouldn't have been um, so rude and unkind. So he said, enough's enough. I need a break. I need to step back and reflect as to what's going on. So let's not have all this scaremongering and parrot monk. <laughs> oh, my God, Linus has left. What are we going to do? Linux is going to disappear tomorrow. Grow up. There's 10,000 developers plus of Linux. Yes, Linus has held them all together. Yes, he's been the man that's gone. Yeah, we'll have some of that. No, we'll have none of that. So yeah, so you've got you know you've got this guy who's who's kept it all together for twenty five years, and all he said is like, Do you know what? I need a break, peeps. And everybody's just exploded. And I just think it's crazy. Yeah, there's a lot of you know conspiracy theories and things, and that kind of goes into some of the next story there. But I, I do think that it's important to remember the amount of pressure and that what Michael said, when you're like, I don't think I could handle that. Most normal human beings, if they really step back and think about it would be in that same position, 10,000 developers, 1200 organizations, hundreds of millions of devices, all reliant on something you do. Yeah. You kind of get a right every once in a while, probably to be a little bit of a jerk. Some of his stuff went too far, frankly, after doing some research into it. And I was like, eh, I didn't realize that some of that stuff was said. It shouldn't have been. He's taking time back to step back and refresh. That's exactly what somebody should do in that position. That takes a lot of self-reflection, a lot of maturity, a mm -hmm. lot of strength to be able to go and do that and announce it to the world because he's in the public eye. That makes mm -hmm. it even harder. I mean, if I go and say, hey, guys, I'm going to take a break, they'd be like, oh, okay, whoever that is. Uh, everybody knows who Linus is, and it's a, it's a big deal.
Yeah. And, and that brings us on, on to the next article, because when I said um, I think it's uh, you know, a bit of a storm in a teacup, when they then announced that there is going to be a new Linux kernel code of conduct, I think this is when the rumor mill like started to get oh, yeah. the speed and go completely out of control because it's, oh my God, Linus is taking a break. So they're bringing in this new code of conduct so that he can never get back in because he'll never meet the standard that they're setting. Well, if you honestly think from the moment he announced this to them bringing out a, a Linux code of conduct that they had not been working on this for weeks, if not months before, and not, I think you'll find that Linus has probably been an integral part of this then let's stop this silly scaremongering and, and just get down to the, to the basic facts of what this is trying to do. So what they're saying is the Linux kernel has a new code of conduct statement that has been signed off by the kernel, kernel developers and maintainers. Now, whether that's all of them or the top 10% or whatever, I don't think you'll ever find out, but it's been agreed, okay? So the new code of conduct seeks to foster civility and the spirit of be excellent to each other now surely you would think in your average 2018 workplace that that would be a matter of fact mm -hmm. so i don't know why there everyone's and excuse the term it's an english term why they're getting their knickers in a twist over this yeah it's just Every now and again, the people in the HR department have to come up with a new set of wording, um, you know, to, to, to keep up with the times and to keep up with the way that current um, legislation is going. And if you don't have the right type of wording in your documentation, then you're going to fall foul of the authorities. So I think that that's all this is going to be. Um, I'm not going to go into the, to the main details of what they are pledging to do because it uses all of those gobbledygook um, unnecessary verbiage like disability ethnicity sexual characteristics gender identity etc 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 everything that we know is important so that you don't penalize somebody just because of their lifestyle or the way they look or the way they dress or the way they talk that for me and i hate the term but I think it's important. That's just common sense. Don't be horrible to somebody. If you're going to be horrible, don't say anything. Keep it to yourself. So what, what, do, you, what do you guys think? I mean, am I oversimplifying this or? I think that for the most part, you could say that this is, is I agree in the sense of like, it, it, it should be common sense. But you can argue that in some, in like big corporations, there's potential for, you know, this the, muddy, the water to be muddy and things like that. Um, I think that the idea of a code of con a conduct is not necessarily a bad thing, but there are some cases where it could be depending on how it's implemented and whether the word is like, you know, kind of ambiguous or, you know, not just, just not specific enough. And th there's cases where that you could argue that this particular code of conduct is a little bit ambiguous. And there are certain pieces where it's very specific and then also kind of followed by ambiguity. So mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's kind of... It, it's an interesting thing that I think that just inherently a code of conduct is not necessarily a bad thing. And, and also a lot of people are freaking out that this is being like, if you were saying that this particular code of conduct you don't agree with, that's an understandable thing. But if you're saying that the Linux kernel having any type of code of conduct at all is going to be a bad thing, then 
I would like to point out three years ago when they added a, a different code that's essentially the same thing called the code of conflict was if, if, if you had a con if you had like it, it addressed the opposite so only if you had an issue would is what it addressed like how would you handle that issue and who would you go to to get uh, you know get that addressed and things like that whereas this is going to be like covering both sides of both the conduct and the conflicts and stuff like that so I think that you know we should take a step back and just kind of like think about really what is this going to ha what is going what is going to happen what is how much difference is this and i think the vast majority of it is like the, the first topic is is definitely related to this topic because him stepping down for a temporary break is you know potentially it's because he's he's realized that you know his attitude and his behavior is potentially detrimental to the project itself and it's moving forward and getting and getting more developers and things like that where if now that he's you know taking in consideration these things this code of conduct is kind of implying like what he is and the rest of the project are hoping for the future to be so there are there's potential that this could be a problem but it and it also depends on whether the code of conduct is you know what what's the motivation behind it and i think as far as the linux kernel goes i think their motivation is just to make sure that the project itself is you know more accepting and more welcoming and things like that not necessarily you know, any, any particular company trying to, you know, manipulate the system or whatever. I think that it's, it's, if you, any, any other past, you could see that anytime anything is trying to be manipulated into the Linux kernel, Linux, Greg KH or, or so, or anybody else was basically like, just shut it down immediately. It's like, there's no chance you're going to get any kind of backdoor. You're not going to be able to force anything in without their approval. And most of the time, there's a committee of pr approval, not just Linus. It's also Greg Cage is also involved in those things like that. So mm -hmm. I think that this is, is potentially there could be some negatives to it, but as far as like the ambiguity, but I think overall having a code of conduct is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And I like I like that that last paragraph that I think you wrote, Ryan, where you said perhaps the focus should be just on this: be kind to each other. Be excellent to each other. Treat others as you would want to be treated. This seems like a win for everyone. Don't do it because of clauses or rules. Do it because it's the best way to get through life. And if you take that simple four-line statement and forget all the hoo-ha, forget all the conspiracy theories, forget you know jumping up and down and developers are saying they're going to be leaving if this is implemented come on let's get a grip this is the single biggest invention that's happened in this century yeah it's massive as michael said the top 500 fastest computers in the world run linux now the guy who looked after it wants a break Crikey, I've been working just in a normal job for 42 <laughs> years and I want a break. So, and I didn't have a, an ounce of the pressure that, that Linus has been under. And they're, and they're just saying, and just to make sure, here's a little set of guidelines that you need to apply by. Now we've got them there. And as Michael said, they're a bit woolly, so we can, we've got a bit of leeway. We'll, we'll just run with it. So just leave it at that and stop. Stop trying to make your magazine seem important just because you've written a controversial article about, you know, about this, about this subject. Yeah. I mean, I'd want them to potentially consider, you know, making it more specific 
and keep and removing as much as the ambiguous aspects as well as part of, because that, that's really the only thing that bothers me is the is the ambiguousness. If that wasn't there and we just know like here's what's acceptable, here's not what acceptable examples, and here's what's what's going to happen if you violate the code of conduct. That kind of thing would be great. If it's just once they were, if they take into consideration those things, and you know, I think there's really no really big deal about it. And overall. You could argue that you know uh, other projects could benefit from having some kind of con code of conduct to, you know, make sure that the the community that, that you are trying to foster is you know civil and welcoming. So overall, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. So I guess we'll just we'll have to see. Mm -hmm. So Ryan, on to some more really informative stuff about who contributes to the kernel. Yeah, so who contributes to the kernel the most? So surprisingly, I didn't see your name here, Michael. I was shocked. I know, I know. They, they don't just, typically uh, put the typo editor in the... Uh... <laughs> oh, okay, got you. Well, our friends over at Pharonix had an interesting article this week showing who contributes to the open source Linux kernel the most out of AMD, NVIDIA, and Intel. And who do you think won? Well, I mean, since you're asking it that way, I'm going to assume. <laughs> Zeb, why aren't you? Why aren't you answering the question? Surely, being Team Green, you would say Nvidia, right? Um, you're wrong. No, because you're I wrong. know. Yeah, I, I, excuse me. I said no. So if I'm wrong, then that means that they were. Come on. Well, this is why you, you've you've aligned yourself to the wrong people here. Uh, AMD has produced nearly eight times as much code to the kernel tree as Nvidia. That's eight times. Yep. Mm -hmm. Two million lines of code and removed four hundred and fourteen thousand. Which well, you is can argue because there was two million mistakes. Oh come on, Zeb! How dare you? <laughs> Nvidia contributed only three hundred thousand wow. lines of code and removed ninety-seven thousand of those lines. That, um, that makes but, sense because that means about one point seven million lines of their code is proprietary. <laughs> <laughs> but who beat everyone, Michael? Well, uh, look, it's, you um, didn't study. It's Intel. No, I did study. I was going to say Team Blue, but I couldn't remember what color it was for a second. <laughs> <laughs> now we have people adding in, by the way, in our Telegram fights for Team Blue. They're like, oh, I'm Team Blue. They started <laughs> their own group. Nice. I'm like, no, you're either Team Green or Team Red, but yeah. uh, now there's Team Blue. So, yeah, Team Blue wins out with 3.5 million lines of code. Yeah, it makes sense considering the like Intel has been making open source uh, drivers for so long that it makes sense that they would have so much more you know invested into the kernel development than you know the rest of them and now that amd is also in that that realm of open sourcing everything and you know being a community uh, a collaboration and effort that it makes sense that they would also be like the second because they haven't had enough time as much as intel has so because you know the, the thing about removing lines is probably because they're just you know just fixing things that they put in themselves and stuff like that so um I, it sort of makes sense that team blue would be uh, or team green would specifically would be at the bottom Mm -hmm. One of our patrons said Steve Ballmer when we asked the question. <laughs> well, there, I believe there was a time um, four or five years ago when Microsoft did actually contribute a considerable amount of code. Yeah, there they, is, still do. they still do every year. Uh, but in 2012, well, I think it was 2012, they were the most contributing of that year. But they mm -hmm. are still a big contributor too. So yeah. uh, the top kernel corporate contributors are Intel Red Hat, the Linux Foundation, Lenaro, SUSE, Texas Instruments, and AMD. So there you go. There's your top uh, contributors to the kernel we love so much. Yep. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's, and it's phenomenal that they, 
let's not forget that they give all of this time free. Mm. They don't get paid for this. They might be able to make a commercial product out of it afterwards. And, and yeah, Red Hat do sell their services uh, for providing Linux, but everybody who contributes does it because they just want a better Linux. I think that's just truly awesome. Yep, I agree. So part of that better Linux is where we come to on part of our tips and tricks of the week. Yeah. Another popular section of the show, and I think more people are saying, can we include more of them? But then I think it might become a bit too technical. So when we just hit a couple of good sections every week, I think that one works. Now, again, I'm going to butcher this word, and I swear you guys just give me the words, the, these jobs with the funny words in them. No, we'd never do that. No. Apropos. Yeah, that's it. Apropos. That's it. Apropos. Yep. So I found this out um, while I was flicking through some bits and pieces, and I, re- I actually read another um, article on the internet which said these are the must, must-have applications that you need to use when you're in the terminal. Now, this is a powerful command that the terminal can help you find what you need to use. Because one of the confusing things for me is, you know, ls minus al. Um, you know, htop, top. Where, where do you find these commands? How do you know what to do? Well, apropos allows you to come up with a simple English question. So if you type apropos move files, it will tell you that you can use git rm, mv, or rm commands. So I'm sure, I'm sure as well that if you typed in apropos print, it would give you a list of commands that had the word print. So it's just an easy way of not having to dig through the man pages, but finding the Linux command you need for the job you want. And as always with these, I'm sure, Michael, that you could incorporate this into some sort of script. Uh, This is more, you could probably, but I think this is more of a, the reference point. So you could use this to find out what you could put into the script. Because if right. you mm-hmm. if you put this into a script, it might output some some inf- some information that wouldn't be relevant to utilize. But more than likely, it would be it'd be a bit more more efficient to uh, use this to get the, get for information what you're going to put into it. And I'd also mm-hmm. like to point out that the example of the move file having rm in there that's the remove part of the move. So uh, right. so okay. so just people make sure they they if they if they look at it because that'll be in the show notes. So just keep that in. Well, mind. you do want to read, yeah, and it does tell you when you use this command what that function does. So the whole idea here is you can't possibly, the no human I know can memorize all of these various commands in Linux. Challenge accepted. <laughs> so and immediately this failed. command allows you to basically be able to do, like you said, apropos print and use the quotes in there. And then it's going to give you a string of commands that you could use here. Like you're going to have cups commands in there uh, that you may utilize if you're trying to set up printers or do different configurations and things. Uh, They're all the different commands that have anything to do with print then would show up there. You can also add additional words and trails to it to make it more specific, but it's just extraordinarily useful when you're sitting there trying to remember what's that command I need to do X, Y, Z. And you just need that little hint to get it on the tip off the tip of your tongue into your uh, typing hands. And this, yeah. this will do that for you. And probably the difficult part of it is going to be typing Apropro correctly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Once you get that down though, you'll never forget it. Uh, and, and another quick tip while we're there, put an alias in so that you can think of a word that will 
be used instead of apropos because yeah. I would certainly forget apropos. But once I've stuck it in an alias and I just and I'm, I was going to say something really stupid and then say use the word find, but then that could really get confused. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a, a Linux. But yeah, and, unless you can remember apropos, that'd be the only thing that would be difficult for me. Yeah. Maybe call it memorizer or something or command memorizer, command memory. Or, or just make it say like, uh, what, what command. And that's all you can do is type in what yeah. command. There yeah, you go. that's good. So this is one that I used when doing the Arch install here. This is our software spotlight. It's Grub Customizer. So new users of Grub. Uh, I remember my first time trying to dive in and repair Grub and my gosh, that thing makes no sense. Thankfully, over all the distro hopping and playing with different distros, it's become a little easier, but I still prefer the GUI version of it. It just makes me feel more confident when I'm editing it. And Grub Customizer provides a nice GUI interface for editing your Grub files. So you can move things, the order of the, the boot order, so if you want Windows to be last or remove it completely, which is what you should do, uh, you could do all that through your Grub configuration there. You can customize your Grub backgrounds, text, et cetera, within this tool. It's very, very powerful. It's also just as dangerous as going in there and editing your Grub file. So if you don't know what you're doing, you probably should still stay away from this tool um, but I used it after installing Arch. It, you know, I used the OS Prober and things, and it found the Fedora install, but didn't quite have some settings right. So went in there through Grub Customizer, fixed it, ran it through, and everything was beautiful. So it is a very powerful and unique tool out there, but use it with caution. Mm -hmm. I used to use it right in the beginning when, like you, I just didn't have a clue what the Grub thing was all about. Um, and it, it enables you to learn about the different sections because you will have to move whole sections of the Grub mm -hmm. around if you want your different distros in a, in a different order. Um, and it's great to, to use it as a learning tool, um, but don't become too overly used to using it if that makes sense and this, this is really unusual for me but sometimes it is really good especially where grub's concerned is to try and learn about it and you can only really learn about it from the command prompt but this is a good a good starting point and or if you're lazy because it works oh that's me keep things <laughs> sensible and simple that explains so much when you try to do things too complicated that it becomes dangerous but if you want some simple stuff yeah i agree it's a great tool there you go. So that's it. That's it for episode 89 of Destination Linux. Thank you for watching. A big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to whatever format you choose the Destination Linux episode. And by the way, the support lately has been ridiculous from patrons to the Telegram group growth uh, through subscribers on YouTube. It's just been crazy. So thank you so much for keeping all of that up. Uh, as we've been working through this show and getting all the changes in place. So, yeah, I just want to echo that. A big thank you to all of the patrons out there. It is really, really great that you're there um, and following us and watching us and, and sending us your emails. So every week we do mention the fact that you can contact us at comments at destinationlinux.org. We've got a Telegram group, which we mention an awful lot, and it is a cracking group, a fantastic <laughs> bunch of people um, made up of patrons and non-patrons. Just because it's a, our, a Telegram group doesn't mean you have to be a patron to join it. Anybody can join and come in and, and, and have a chat with us. 
We've also got a Discord channel. You can find us on Google Plus and Twitter and Mastodon and a whole host of other media outlets that I probably didn't even know existed. But thankfully, we've got Michael here who does know all about it. <laughs> so you can, you can find those on destinationlinux.org forward slash contact. And I know I beat on about it every week, but it really is great that you're sending us in these emails and telling us about your Linux journey, how you use Linux. Keep them coming because it is becoming rapidly one of my favorite sections of the show. Yeah, absolutely. And also, uh, maybe everybody remember to like that smash button. <laughs> and if you'd like to watch the show live, you can join us in the Zoom chat room by becoming a patron by going to uh, Destination Linux dot org slash patreon that's it for the show uh, everybody have a great week and never forget that the destination is not always at the end of a single journey thanks everyone bye-bye